I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And so uh, today I'm excited about returning to our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to pick up where we left off back in November, which means our passage today is Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 17. And uh, you may remember that Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 It's one long sentence of over 200 words in the original Greek text. You know, that that long sentence of all the spiritual blessings of our salvation in Christ is followed by uh, an incredible prayer in the second half of Ephesians 1 that goes from verse 15 to verse 23. And guess what? Verse 15 to verse 23 is also one long sentence of uh, nearly 170 words in the original Greek text. And so... One way to think about this is the first half of Ephesians 1 details all of the spiritual blessings of our salvation in Christ, and the second half is a prayer that we might understand it, that we might grasp it in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. So today we're beginning this study of of a great prayer from the Apostle Paul. And if you're familiar with his New Testament letters, you'll know that Paul's letters are are filled with prayer. Filled with prayer. And this most likely tells us something about Paul and about his own personal prayer life and about his spirituality, about his walk with Jesus, about the intensity and the demands of his life and of his ministry and about his, his heart and his concern and compassion for the churches that he planted, started, and, and sought to encourage and strengthen. See, in a word, Paul's letters are filled with prayer, most likely because his life was filled with prayer. And by the way, Paul's prayers here in Ephesians and and in his other letters are actually wonderful models for how we can and ought to pray for ourselves and to pray for those other Christians in our lives that we regularly pray for. So, for example, by way of application, that you know, if you signed up for the Every Person Prayer Initiative and you've got a little list of names, you know, pray, pray this prayer. Pray this prayer at the end of Ephesians 1 for the people on that list. Now, since this is one long prayer, and we're going to be going through it you know, little bit by little bit, today and for as long as we're in this section of Ephesians 1, I will read the whole prayer, even though I'm only going to be preaching through part of it. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word beginning in Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. 
And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. Now, before, before I tell you what the headings are that we're going to be looking at, I can feel that my insulin pump is, is buzzing. It doesn't mean I'm dying or anything like that. It just means that unless I deal with this, it may start, I, not, I won't die, but, but it may mean that, I, that, that, I, that it starts beeping. And so I'm just going to try to take care of that real quick. And so I don't want anybody worried about me. Alicia, you worried about me? Okay. All right. So we're, she knows it's fine. Okay. All right. So our three headings. There are three questions. And th- these are not very, you know, creative questions. These are the questions that I thought about that helped me understand what Paul's saying here at the very beginning of this prayer. And, and I mean, this is a very deep prayer. We're going to go into it in the weeks to come. But just thinking about, okay, what does he say at the very beginning and not wanting to take any of this for granted? Because we could very easily just skip over this whole section. If we're just doing our Bible reading, we can say, okay, Paul's praying. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, let's get to, let's get to, to, to some good stuff. Let's, let's get by this. I don't want us to do it. So here are our three questions. First, for what is Paul thankful? It's a prayer of thanksgiving and doxological praise, but for what is Paul thankful? Second, who does Paul thank? Now, you may think, well, that's very obvious, and it is, but, but, but there's, some, there's more to it than that. So who does Paul thank? And who does he not thank? But who does he thank? Okay, third, for what does Paul pray? There's a lot of things he could pray for First Presbyterian Church of Ephesus. But for what does he actually pray for them? So first, for what... Is Paul thankful? Look at verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so at the very beginning, there's this summary statement of of all that Paul's thankful for, for this reason. For this reason. I think for this reason points back to the, the Christian's stunningly marvelous inheritance in Jesus Christ, which... Ephesians 1, verse 3 to verse 14, lays out for us so beautifully in which we spent all of the fall working our way through. This inheritance, which is not merely, not only something that Paul says awaits us, awaits the Christian far off in the future, rather Paul makes it plain that we already, today, right now, have a present possession of our spiritual blessings in Christ. So Paul says, for this reason, then look again at verse 15 to see what Paul says specifically because he mentions two specific things that he does not cease to give thanks for. So look again. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So do you see and hear But Paul mentions two specific things for which he's thankful. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. So let's think about those in turn. First, their faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul is thankful that they're trusting in Jesus as their Savior. He's thankful that they believe that they trust in Christ. 
Paul's not thankful that the members of the Ephesian church are merely good, moral, decent people, relatively well-behaved. He doesn't say that he's thankful that that they're people who are trying really hard to make sure that their their good deeds at at least outnumber or outweigh their bad deeds. He doesn't say he's thankful that at least you guys are trying hard to be better than most people. Above average, that's good, I'm glad you're doing that. Paul is thankful for the report that he's heard of their faith in Christ. And let's don't run past that. I mean, why does that matter? I mean, we must never overlook the fact that no one is saved by their good works. No one is saved by their good deeds. No one is saved because, you know, they they were better than, than most people. We are saved by Christ. We're saved by his life, death, and resurrection. We must trust in Christ. That's why Paul's thankful for their faith in Jesus. See, Jesus' atoning death on the cross, that shed blood washes away the guilt of our sin. His perfect, righteous, sinless life is what is imputed to us, is credited to us when we trust in Christ. It's not just that our sins are washed away, though they are, praise God, but we're also clothed in Christ's righteousness. And he rose from the grave on that first Easter morning. It's not just that our sins are washed away and we're credited with Christ's righteousness and now then we're on our own to try to you know, do the best we can, turn over a new leaf. No, there's resurrection power. We are raised to new life. There's new birth. We have new hearts. We're made new creations. We've been raised to newness of life from our state of spiritual death. We're given this resurrection power so that we can walk in newness of life as we seek to follow Christ wholeheartedly. As Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul has heard the report of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and for that he's thankful. Second, he's thankful for their love toward all the saints. Look again at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Okay, I want you to look at that word all. Do you know what that word means in the original Greek text? It means all. It means every. See, the first service, they got that. They knew right away. They, see, they've been studying their Greek. So you guys have got to bone up on that a little bit, especially, especially you guys right here in this section. You've got to get ready for that. But your love toward all the saints. See, Christian love does not pick and choose which believers it will love. Christian love is indiscriminate. Christian love shows no partiality. That Christians are to love all the saints. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it, As we are knit to Christ by faith, so we must be knit to the communion of saints by love. Or as Jesus put it in John 13, verses 34 and 35, in the upper room with his disciples on the night before the cross, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer, he explains this this way. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen even when we give proper answers. Now, we must give the proper answers. We must give the proper answers. We must be prepared to give the proper answers, but the proper answers should never be divorced from this true Christian love that we have for one another. After we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. If the world does not see this, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. See, true salvation goes from the head and the heart of the believer out to everyone in their church family, and then beyond them to their neighbors, out into the world. Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, and I have not stopped giving thanks for those things. You see, even though Paul is in prison in Rome, he's been receiving reports from the Ephesian Christians. You see, this is what gets him excited. It's it's their faith in Christ, and it's their love for one another, their love for all the saints. That's what gets him excited. It's not that, you know, First Pres Ephesus is the largest church in the region. It's not that it has the, you know, it's the fastest growing church there. It's not that it has the largest budget. What Paul gives thanks for is that the Christians in the Ephesian church are displaying faith and love displaying genuine faith in Christ and true love for all the saints. And that is what moves Paul to this doxological prayer. And see, and this is not unique to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That Paul regularly praises praises God and thanks God that he sees this in other Christians in his other letters. For example, in Colossians 1, verses 3 and 4, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Or listen to what he says to Philemon in verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. Or 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So think about it this way. If, if somebody was to ask you, how would you define a Christian, define what a Christian is? You know, what is a Christian? There are many ways we can answer that question, but one way is to say that he or she has faith in Jesus Christ, and he or she has a genuine love for the saints, a genuine love for the rest of God's people. See, a local church, even here in Houston, may be considered successful and impressive because of its size or its budget or because of its apparent influence throughout the city. However, without faith in Christ and without love for all the saints, such a church fails in its mission. Okay, so I think I have to stop here and ask us, make us think about this. Maybe you've already started thinking about this. How are we doing? How are we doing as a church? Are we growing in our faith? 
Are we growing in our love for one another? But, you know, if, and if you start to answer, think about that, the answer to that question, how are we doing, you know I have to get even more specific. How are you doing? How are you doing as an individual? Are you being strengthened in your faith in Christ? Are you growing in your love for all the saints here at CEPC? Now, I, I've always found this church... I think in the nearly 14 years that my family's been here, I found this church to be incredibly warm and loving. I've, all, I've always found it to be the case. Now, I've, you know, I've got a unique perspective because you guys pay me to be here, okay? But I've, but I've always felt like that you loved me and you loved my family and you were glad that we were here. However, from, from time to time, it doesn't happen often, once, twice a year, just a few times, every so often, Someone will mention to me, Richard, I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to find my place at CEPC. I'm struggling to fit in, to connect with people. And, and that always breaks my heart. It always breaks my heart to hear that. But, but you know what breaks my heart even more is whenever I ask them, Okay, well, tell me, which, which Sunday morning class have you been attending? And they say, well, I haven't been able to make it to one of those yet. I say, okay, well, well which city group ha- have you visited? Well, none of those work with our schedule. I haven't been able to make it to one yet. Okay, well, in which areas of ministry have you tried to volunteer and serve? Well, well none yet. Okay, well, are you signed up for our upcoming men's retreat? Well, no, I thought about it, but no, not yet. Okay, well, are, you know, are you going to the Women's Journeys event? Well, well, no. And, and at that point, my heart really sinks unless that person then says, you know what? I understand what you're saying, Richard. I really should visit a Sunday morning class. And I need to try to find a city group that fits my schedule. And you know what? I'm going to sign up for the retreat. You see, a church should be marked by its members' faith in Christ and genuine love for one another, but you're not really going to be able to evaluate a church in these areas unless you jump in with both feet, unless you really get involved. Richard Phillips explains, today, ministers and church leaders are pressured to focus on priorities that do not have the effect of building faith and love but that appeal to the social and worldly desires of people. In this way, churches are often successful in becoming impressive to the world, but they are of little use to Jesus because they have neglected God's word and prayer, which are God's means for strengthening faith and love. What Paul constantly looked for in his churches, prayed for, and thanked God to see was faith and love. Now, my my promise to you my commitment to you is that we, were, we will remain, I will remain, we will remain fiercely committed to not neglecting God's word and prayer. We're not going to neglect that. And my prayer for you is that you will grow in your faith and that you will grow in your love for all the saints here at CEPC and you will grow in your love for all of our neighbors. Love that begins here for one another and that extends outward to our neighbors, which means that you're going to have to jump in. You're going to have to get to know people. You're going to have to sign up for events. 
You're going to have to attend programs. You're going to have to find a class, attend a group. You're going to have to begin to serve and use your many gifts in the life of our church. And we need you to do that. We want you to do that. So for for what is Paul thankful? I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Here's the second question. Who does Paul thank? Okay, look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul's praying. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. And of course, whenever Paul prays, just like you pray, he prays to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son. Therefore, who does Paul thank? Well, Paul thanks God the Father for the Ephesian Christian's faith and love. Now, once you think about this, let's don't skip past this too quickly. From his prison cell, Paul has heard this good report of the faith and the love of the Ephesian church. They're doing well. He's heard about their faith and their love for all the saints. But who does he thank? He doesn't thank them. He doesn't thank them for the good job they're doing. He doesn't pat them on the back because they're doing such a good job. Rather, Paul thanks God for God's sovereign work of love and grace in their lives. That's what we've heard, right? Earlier in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, it's all about God's sovereign work in in, in the hearts and lives of his elect. And so listen how D.A. Carson puts this. Apart from God's powerful, transforming work, These people would never have been converted. Without God, they would never have begun to display the trust, faithfulness, and love now richly displayed in their lives. Therefore, whatever Christian virtues characterize them become the occasion for heartfelt praise to God. Who does Paul think? He thanks God because God is the one who's done the work. Or as Augustine put it, I think quite memorably, O Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. See, our, our Heavenly Father truly is our God from whom all blessings flow, including the blessings of justification and sanctification in our hearts and lives. Indeed, everything good in us is due to our good, loving, and sovereign God. But my point here is that we need to stop and ask ourselves, how often do we consider that truth? Everything good in your life comes from God. You're God from whom all blessings flow. And that includes your spiritual growth, your, your growth in grace, the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. All of this is due to God's grace at work in our lives as the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in our hearts. You know, parents of children still living at home, you know, as a fellow parent of four such children, I know that, that, that you're like me. I know this is the case. You desire that your children would be grateful for all of the many blessings they have, to not take those things for granted. Right? We want them to be grateful. But let's be honest, how are we doing at this? What difference would it make if we properly recognized all we owe to our Heavenly Father? You know, yes. Material needs, provision, yes, our salvation, also our sanctification. 
And everything else that that God works and uses for our ultimate good and his glory, including things that we would never choose for ourselves, including those things we never signed up for and we would never sign up for, those things, those circumstances, those trials, those sufferings that that, that are seem impossible, that we would never ever choose for ourselves. Our good and our sovereign God works all things, even those things, together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, O oh Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. Now look again at Ephesians 1, verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So let me just stop there. Do you see that Paul uses two phrases back to back, right beside each other, to describe the one in the same God the Father? Do you see that? He uses two phrases. That he is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the Father of glory. Right, puts them right there, back to back, referring to the same God. So let's think about those in turn. First, Paul says that God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that is to say, our God is the God of John 3.16. He is the God who so, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's also the God of Romans 8.32. He's the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That God the Father is this God of mercy and amazing grace. However, look again at Ephesians 1, verse, 6, verse 7, 16, 17. That the God of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. The Father of glory, or the, the glorious Father. See, our God is the one true God of glory, of majesty, of infinite majesty. And so if you put those two phrases, those two ways that Paul describes God the Father, that we see he's both merciful and majestic. That he's both imminent, he's near, and he's knowable, and he's approachable. And he's transcendent. He's holy, infinite, other. And we make a big mistake whenever we try to make God out to be one or the other as if one is bad and one is good. We need God to be who God is. Merciful and majestic, imminent and transcendent. You know, our shorter catechism teaches us the answer to the question, what is God, is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, transcendent. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and his goodness and his truth. See, every time you bow your head to pray, you are praying to this God who's merciful and majestic, who is imminent and transcendent, the God who is merciful, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sent Jesus the Son to live, die, rise from the grave to save you, the God who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness towards you. And every time you pray, you're praying to the God, yes, who's merciful, and the God who is majestic and holy, the God who is the Father of glory, the glorious Father who's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, 
justice, goodness, and truth. As Ian Hamilton puts it, there is a wonderful conjunction of majesty and mercy in the Christian gospel. The God of glory is not to be trifled with. He's holy. Nor is he to be kept at a distance. He is rich in mercy and kind to sinners. And he has come near to us in his only son. He is a God to whom we can come with humble confidence that he will hear us and answer us out of the overflow of his goodness and mercy. I mean, what difference would that make if that was really in the forefront of our minds? Whenever we bowed our heads to pray, it can make all the difference in the world. We don't have to think, what if? We don't have to think, well, what if we had a God like this? This is the God we have. This is the God you have. The third heading, final question, for what does Paul pray? Now, we're, we're just beginning this prayer. It's a long prayer. There's going to be a lot of things that Paul prays, but we see in verse 17 that we see the beginning of kind of a summary statement of what Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. Now, I hear you turning pages, you're going to be looking at it, okay? But before you look at it, think about it. Paul could have prayed for so many different things for these Christians. I mean, he could have prayed. I mean, they lived in, in, a, in, a, in a city not that different from Houston in many ways, I mean, 2,000 years ago, their things were different, but, but it was a, you know, I mean, a pagan city, a pluralistic society. You know, everybody in the city you know, weren't Christians. There were lots of different idols, lots of different false gods around. So there's many things that, that, that he could have prayed for them. He could have prayed for God to protect them from persecution. You know, plagues and disease were a great danger. He could have prayed for God to keep them healthy. You know, he, he could have prayed for God to provide all the financial needs their church and their ministries would need. But that's not what Paul asked God to do for them. Paul prayed that God would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give them a true, rich, and fuller knowledge of God. Paul prays that they would know God. Look, look at Ephesians 1, verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So think this through with me. The Ephesian Christians, they already know God, right? They already know God. Paul's already heard from his prison cell the good reports of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. They know God. But Paul prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So put another way, the Ephesian Christians know God, but Paul prays that they would know God even better. They would know him deeper by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word of God in their hearts. And, and as I studied for this sermon, you know, I, I listened, to, listened to and read lots of commentaries and, and uh, sermons and so forth. And I came across so many different pastors from a variety of generations writing you know, decades apart sometimes. And they all agreed that the greatest need of the church is the need that Paul identified 2,000 years ago 
They said that's the greatest need of the church still today, and it is that Christians would know God. That we would have, all have, an intimate relationship with the God of glory and of grace. That we would grow more and more in our knowledge of God, a, a true knowledge, according to his word, of the one true God. And we will only grow more and more in our knowledge of God through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. As James Montgomery Boyce puts it, if we are to know God, we must spend time with him in Bible study, prayer, and meditation. You cannot get to know a person without spending time with him or her. No more can you get to know God without spending time with him. And that's what we're doing here in this room. Today and each and every Sunday, that's what we're doing in between the call to worship and the benediction. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. This is the way, the reason why we preach the way we preach. This is the reason why I preach the way I preach. I'm trying to cram as much of the Word of God as I possibly can into this time together, into every sermon. I mean, this is why we worship the way we worship. Every Sunday, we aim to sing the Bible and pray the Bible and read the Bible and preach the Bible and see the Bible in the sacraments. This is why we have our Sunday morning uh, classes teaching you know, children and students all the way up to adults. That we will only grow more and more of our, in our knowledge of God through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word of God in our hearts. However, the the challenge, the real challenge for a church like this one is that we never want to settle for mere knowledge of the Bible without knowing God. We never want to settle for mere knowledge about God that falls short of growth in the true knowledge of the one true God through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word of God in the hearts of the people of God. You know, Paul's desire was that the Ephesian church would grow in their true knowledge of the one true God. That's what he desired for them. Do you desire that for yourself? Your list of priorities and the things that you desire for yourself in 2022, where it is growing in the true knowledge of the one true God rank in that list of priorities, that list of desires. I mean, do you want to experience the fullness of God's grace and his presence with you as you seek to follow him wholeheartedly? I mean, do you even desire it? Do you desire to desire it? Then, dear Christian, give yourself to his word. Give yourself to his word. Commit yourself to faithfully worshiping with God's people Sunday after Sunday and pray for God, beg God, plead with God to work powerfully through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit in your heart today and throughout this year. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, please do this in us.
Please make us a church that's growing in our faith in the Lord Jesus, that is growing in our love for all the saints. Lord, please give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.